Thank you so very much. Good morning. We are Sunday before Thanksgiving, and it seems so incredibly appropriate to have the passage that we're considering this morning in front of us because this passage is a passage that is dripping of thanksgiving to God for God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercies in our lives. So love for you now to take your Bibles and join me. We're turning to Psalm 22. Last week, we looked at Psalm 22, verse 1, down through verse 21, didn't we? And we're calling this the Song of the Cross. It's in two parts. Last week, it was, in a sense, a, a song of lament, where we find the messianic figure ultimately known as Jesus Christ, going through such suffering and such sorrow. And we saw various ways in which the verses in Psalm 22 link directly to the gospel accounts that you and I find. Uh, You might remember, for example, we covered verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet which has direct bearing, of course, upon what took place with Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. People were staring. They were gloating. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And then with such prophetic precision, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast Lots, which is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. What astounds, though, is that this was penned roughly 1000 BC. And now we find all of this coming to fruition, fulfillment in Jesus. What I want us to be able to see this morning is that there's this dramatic change. This is, this is an extraordinary shift in mood from verse 21 to verse 22, because in verse 21, after everything seems to be going wrong for this one that was, is known as Messiah, it ends with this statement, you have rescued me. Now, this is talking about the future, but it's talking about the future as if it's in the past. In other words, good is done, even though this is a thousand years prior to Jesus. Good is done. In other words, something's going to happen with that, with that crucifixion. Something's going to happen with that one placed in the tomb. And three days later it happened, and Jesus was raised from the grave. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You say, Gary, don't quite get that. But you see, that was terminology that the Jews used to describe Gentiles. And so in the terms of Jesus Christ, you have Roman soldiers gathered around him. They're the ones that are dividing the garments and so on, casting lots and likes. So poetic, yes, but prophetic. You see the detail here. Now the sudden change in mood where a statement of thanksgiving now erupts in these verses, beginning in verse 22 down through verse 31. And here we find these words. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now you ask why? Whenever you see the little word F-O-R, it's about to answer the question, why, in Scripture. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now from you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now notice the F-O-R again. Here's the reason why again. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Now, I want you to mark this and note how it's alluded to in your insert this morning as the phrase ends, he has done it. For you see, friends, on the cross of Jesus Christ, in John 19, verse 30, the cry was, it is finished. Now, what I want you to be able to see this morning is that what Christ was doing was that he had so mastered Psalm 22 that both the first verse and the last verse were uttered by Christ on the cross. First verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will proceed to answer that question, God will, by rescuing Christ from the grave. And then the last verse, he has done it, where in the Greek New Testament, tetelestai, it is finished. What you have just done brilliantly is that you have bookended the first and the last verses of Psalm 22, brought them right before the cross of Jesus Christ in prophetic form, and allow yourself to be able to ponder how the fourth and sixth statements of Christ on the cross of seven statements uttered by him were immersed in scripture and had direct bearing upon the way he managed his pain and his suffering. What a powerful example as to how we are to take scripture and utilize scripture as well to guide us through the challenges of life as we look to our Lord now in prayer. So Father, I'm thanking you for who you are, thanking you for the God who fulfills the promises of scripture we are astounded that this would be penned a thousand years before Christ set foot in Palestine. But that's you. You stand outside of time. You reign over time. You break into time with Jesus.
who died for our sins. We see such prophetic detail in these verses, awed by the fact that these were penned a thousand years before Christ entered into this world. All the more reason, Father, to see the authority of your word. All the more reason to see your grace at work. We praise you. So, Father, these moments are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come back with me again to New England? We're going to stand together now at Plymouth Rock. Oh, we find, found a, a particular tour guide who understands the aspects of Christian history and how they relate to the setting that we find ourselves standing before Plymouth Rock. And now our tour guide is going to begin to tell us a story. And the tour guide will tell you and tell me that there was this king, and this king's name was King James. And you look at me, I look at you and say, King James Version? Yeah, he's the guy. But you see, the King James that we think of in terms of the King James Version was also the King James that was not particularly fond of the pilgrims. As a matter of fact, he had vowed, I shall make them conform or I will hurry them out of the land or else do worse. And so they made their way out. Made their way to Holland. And in Holland, they, these believers, they, they found that these were difficult times. It was a difficult setting. And when they tried to send tracts, the gospel message, back to England for people in their region they had come from, well, they were intercepted at the, at the shoreline. Well, what to do? It was decided that these individuals were going to make their way to what we know as America. Now, only 35 pilgrims left Holland for the first voyage met their ship, the Mayflower, in England, and some 80 other English joined them for the trip to America. Roughly 102 passengers on the two-month voyage. Not all were Christians. Some had other than religious reasons for, for coming. But the pilgrims provided the leadership for the group and it seemed to be a distinctive among the people. They were known either as the saints or the strangers, the unbelievers known as the strangers. When they set foot in some extraordinary conditions, what we find is that William Bradford, the governor of the little colony for over 31 years, would write a valuable history of the Plymouth Plantation. He described the development of the Mayflower Compact, those of you that have studied history know all about. But then, as he reflected upon that significant 
event of the embarkment of coming ashore, he would write, quote, They came to an anchor in the bay, which is a good harbor, compassed about to the very sea with pines, juniper, sassafras, other sweet wood. And then would add, quote, They blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the fast and furious ocean on a sea of troubles before them. Let them, therefore, praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Now, what's described there is what's described here. The idea of praise upon coming ashore is the idea of praise that these individuals are now offering to get. Well, I want to be able to articulate as you move from verses 1 through 21, the cross of Christ, to verses 22 onward, your response to the cross of Christ is this. As grace is extended to us, gratitude is to be expressed by us. As grace is extended to us, gratitude is to be expressed by us. One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. The chief idea of my life is the idea of taking things with gratitude and not taking things for granted. And so in a culture where so much is taken for granted, the believer, on the other hand, takes things with gratitude, and then even in the hardships of life, finds a way of expressing gratitude because the expression of gratitude is the result of the extension of grace. What we're going to do this morning is to look at the second part of this Song of the Cross. It divides naturally into two parts. My favorite type of teaching is not three, but two-part. And here you've got a two-parter. And the first flows out of verse 22 through 26. That as you and I, as we reflect upon how this psalm points toward Christ's cross here, I want to begin with you by looking carefully at how at the congregational expression of thankfulness to God. Two expressions of thankfulness in these verses. Here's your first. The congregational expression of thankfulness to God. A congregation that is cross-centered is one that finds a way of expressing gratitude to God because of the extension of grace to us. Now, it begins this way in verse, in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now, when you see the idea, see the word name found in the Bible pertaining to God, this has to do with the sum total of God's characteristics, the sum total of God's attributes, his qualities. 
So what you want to do now in the midst of these days leading up to and through Thanksgiving is to look for various ways in which the attributes of God have direct bearing upon the way in which you're giving thanks to God. So as you're around the table, let's say on Thursday, you might want to recall how the wisdom of God guided you in terms of counsel through the decisions you've been making over the course of this year. Or for another person, it might be the power of God and the way in which his strength enabled you to be able to deal with the challenges of life through the days of this year. On and on and on we go. In other words, look for various attributes of God that are wrapped up in the name of God because the name of God deals with the sum total of the attributes of God and allow that to have direct bearing upon the way in which you are offering thanksgiving for I will tell of your name this point, we're talking about believers, to my brothers. It's like a William Bradford who would become governor of Plymouth Colony. And there he is guiding people on the shoreline, Plymouth Rock, of giving praise to God. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. Now, you're up to verse 23, aren't you? And in verse 23, it talks about the fear of the Lord. And you say, Gary, uh, I struggle with that phrase. Well, we've got to bear in mind that that idea of the fear of the Lord comes with it, the whole idea of expressing trust in God, faith in the Lord that we know as Jesus Christ. It is the expression of, you see, that sense of awe for who God is, an expression of awe for what God has done, and you're simply wrapped up in the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that God has extended and the gratitude now that you want to be able to express to him. For you see, unconditional grace has no place, no room for conditional gratitude. Where I lay down conditions whereby I'll praise God as long as God does X, Y, and Z for Highlander, that doesn't cut it, you see. And furthermore, the song of the cross has no place to coexist with the spirit of complaint. Where there is the song of the cross, the spirit of complaint is distant, foreign, but when the spirit of complaint is central, the song of the cross is distant and foreign. They're not meant to coexist. And so now, even at Plymouth Rock, there is this song of the cross that was being expressed with gratitude to God because of the grace extended to us. You who fear the Lord, you're, you're in awe of it all, you praise him. But now what I want you to see is not once, but twice here in verse 23, there's the utilization of the word offspring. What we have to bear in mind is that the messianic community, the Jewish population would have extraordinary value and appreciation and admiration for that word because they knew the Genesis account and they knew that there was going to be this one 
offspring that would come from Eve that would conquer the evil one. And generation after generation after generation, God continued to fulfill his promise as he provided his protection in making absolutely certain that the offspring, generation by generation, would continue to provide a means by which the ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ, would come into this world, you see. This is astounding stuff. So you see, as you're offering praise to God, and there is gratitude to him because of his grace for you, grace for me, at this moment then, you're thinking to yourself, my word, what a change. The tone, the mood is changed. Verses 1 through 21, the sufferings now result in the praise being offered to God. How do you transition like that? William Sangster helps us. He tells us the story about the Flixton in 1918. Small hull steamer. One day it was making its way up the English Channel. Lookout man noticed that there was this white line coming swiftly toward the ship. No doubt about it. It was a torpedo from a German submarine, which was right at the moment rising to the surface to be able to produce this deadly damage. The lookout naturally gave a shout. Everyone on board ran to that side of the ship. All looked hopeless. Nothing in their minds could save them. Too late to turn the ship around. They knew they were about to be blown up. And then, and then, the most amazing thing happened, you see. Only a few yards from its target, something went wrong with the mechanism of the torpedo. Or did something go right? For you see, it reared its nose out of the water, turned course, shot straight and fast on the very path it had just traveled, before the helpless, hopeless British seamen knew what had happened, they saw the torpedo smash into the German sub and blow it up. And what you see here, and what you see illustrated here, is such a dramatic transition where you felt as though everything looked hopeless, everything seemed helpless, and the next thing you know, there is a complete reversal. And that is what happens here in this psalm. There is a complete reversal. The Messiah is suffering in 1 through 21. Then lo and behold, he speaks past tense as if his good is done in verse 21. You have rescued me, even though this was penned a thousand years before Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. You've rescued me. Sure enough, three days later from that cross, God the Father did it. And so God the Sovereign One is protecting now the offspring that leads to the ultimate offspring. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, and now and now. F-O-R time. You're up to verse 24. You're about to be given the reason. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. In other words, the sovereign God has not abhorred the Messiah dying on that cross. 
he will answer the prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With the three days later, being raised from the grave. I love the next phrase, don't you? It is, it is so Jewish. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Not hidden his face from him. Number 622. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you, keep you, Make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what is informing what David is writing and links to what Christ would experience on that cross. I'm standing with extended family. We're in Central Park. Some of you know the story. Second... Otis and the family, Joseph's just gotten his MD, and we're going to dinner. His wife, Jess, wonderful, wonderful daughter-in-law and daughter. She uh, has arranged for the meal, so we sat down together, extended family. I hear a gathering in a side room. And it's very clear there's a Jewish family, extended family, lots and lots and lots of people there. So I get up. My granddaughter, Addie, gets up with me. I go over to the window, looking out over Central Park. My word, there's a gondola positioned there, just making its way down the waters, I'm thinking. And then all of a sudden, this father of the bride father-in-law to the groom, lifts his hands, looks at the couple, and says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And I can almost hear the music. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. 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 And here's David. And he is the means by which the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, would come into this world. He's been afflicted. But he's got a reason. He has not despised or abhorred, abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Jesus most likely is meditating upon that on the cross. He has not hidden his face from him. Number six erupts at that point, but has heard when he cried to him. What do you do with that? How do you ponder that? 
you're back now. You're back to it all. From you comes my praise in the congregation. Now you link congregation in verse 22 to, again, the word in verse 25. He's got something to say in the period of thanksgiving as to you, as do I. Therefore my vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat, be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. It's amazing how the afflicted ones can give praise to God. Corey Tenboom would remind us of that. In the hiding place, she tells of a story in which her, uh, that taught her always to be thankful. Because, you see, she and her sister Betsy had been transferred to the worst German prison camp during World War II they'd seen yet Ravensbrück. And on entering the barracks, they found themselves extremely overcrowded. It was flea-infested. Well, the writer tells us that morning, their scripture reading was from 1 Thessalonians and reminded them to rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances. Well, Betsy told Corey to stop and thank the Lord for every detail of their new living quarters. And Corey, we are told, flatly refused to give thanks for the fleas. But Betsy insisted. So finally, (coughs) excuse me, finally, Corey offered thanks for the fleas to God. Get this. During the months spent at the camp, they were surprised to find how openly they could hold Bible study and prayer meetings without guard interference. It was not until several months later that they had learned the reason the guards would not enter the barracks was because of the fleas. For you see, you never quite know the reason why you ought to be giving thanks to God for the afflictions you're experiencing. It might not be until months or maybe years later. And then you have an aha moment. and say, I get it. But God was waiting for the immediate praise and thankfulness from your lips proclaimed before his throne. Now, that's your first expression, the congregational expression. Here's your second expression of thankfulness. It's the global expression of thankfulness to God. For you see, once the congregation has done its duty, And now the word is getting out that God is the God of grace and he sent Messiah to die for our sins. Look what happens beginning in verse 27 as you move from the congregational to the global. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Hit the pause button at that point. You remember we covered last week the imagery in 12 and 13? where the messianic figure is describing the, the circle of antagonism around him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. What was the imagery? The imagery was that of Gentile opponents to the Jewish nation that have now made their way to conquer. 
Is this a foretaste of the Roman Empire and the Roman soldiers who were dividing the garments of Jesus Christ and furthermore, finding a way to cast lots, you see? Well, no. You're looking at that. It's poetic for sure, but it's prophetic. And now you, what you do is you build what we've talked about over the course of these few weeks, what I call the kingship pyramid. Or chapters, rather, Psalms 20 through 24, build a sense of kingship. Each of those psalms is a kingship psalm. 20, 21, till you get to the pinnacle, 22. And now the Jewish need to know, the Jewish people need to know, and the Gentile people need to know, that this suffering needed to precede the victory. In other words, the, the king needed to die. And then he would be raised from the grave, but the suffering had to precede the giving of thanks to God. That's what 21 was all about. You make your way up furthermore, and now, lo and behold, the pinnacle of it all, there's this proclamation of victory that has occurred. He therefore rules over the nations, you and I are told here, as that sign on the cross said, King of the Jews not in mere Jewish language, but in different languages so that Gentiles and Jews alike would walk by and see that this is a global statement being made and this is a global statement being made right here in this psalm. And you're awed and you're pondering the significance of it all. And then you're smiling when you think of Dr. Henrietta Mears in the Taj Mahal of India famed structure noted for its incredible acoustics standing in the center of the white marble building the guide there had shouted rather loudly there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet and his voice Henrietta Mies tells us reverberated through all the chambers and the corridors of the tomb but not to be outdone Dr. Mears asked, may I say something? And the guide courteously replied, certainly. And in clear, distinct voice, Dr. Mears said, Jesus Christ, Son of God, is Lord over all. And her voice, we are told, reverberated from wall to wall through the quarters of the shrine over and over again. Lord over all, Lord over all, Lord over all. Did you notice the alls found here? Verse 27, all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations. Now you see, you're up to verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And now I can imagine the pilgrims. And they're thinking about the statement that was made by King James. And he had this, this need to hurry them out of England. And here we find now kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. This has direct bearing upon the way in which we understand politics today. You're up to verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. 
And so now what you have is the opportunity around the Thanksgiving table to be able to do something multi-generational where you take the attributes of God because you're focused upon the name of the Lord and maybe for one person it's a tying wisdom of the Lord to a particular situation that they've had to deal with in life. Another the power of the Lord to another situation of life but through it all what you're doing is offering a multi-generational moment of expressing thankfulness for as grace is extended to us, gratitude is to be expressed by us. You're up now to verse 31. And here they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Take a deep breath. Connect now verse 1 of last week to verse 31 of this week. Last week, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Christ on the fourth statement on the cross. He was meditating upon Psalm 22. And now, how does it end? He has done it, which links to the sixth statement on the cross. Telestei in the Greek. It is finished. A thousand years, a thousand years before Christ entered this world, and we see a psalm that bookends his wording on the cross, takes me back to a story. Thomas Nast, gifted artist, once performed this incredible feat with his brushes, taking a canvas about six feet long, two feet wide, placed it nearly horizontal upon an easel before his audience, get this, began to sketch this landscape. There was a barn, farmhouse, fields, streams, bright sky, no clouds, beautiful. At length, no finishing touch seemed necessary. But the artist just stood there looking at the crowd and smiling, holding his brush. And they were applauding and applauding and applauding. They were standing and applauding. He lifted his head, motioning for them to sit down. Evidently, he wasn't quite done yet. When the applause subsided, he went back to the canvas, taking darker colors, he applied them recklessly so it seemed to the audience, the canvas, out went the bright sky, blotted out the meadows, fields, orchards, buildings, up and down across everything. The artist's hand moved until the landscape was totally obliterated, nothing but this dark daub appearance. And then he stepped back laid down his brush and said, it is finished. Nobody said a word. Silence. No applause. But then the rest of the story. Nast then ordered the stage attendants to 
place a frame around the ruined work of art, turn it to a vertical position, and then the mystery was revealed. For before the audience stood a, a panel picture of this beautiful waterfall, water plunging over a precipice, dark rock, skirted with trees and the likes. Everybody was stunned. The applause was deafening. All he did was to invert the frame. What I want to say to you this morning is the one who said it is finished is the one who inverts the frame of life. And maybe it seems as though everything has been darkened. It might seem everything is hopeless. And then Jesus breaks in. He turns the picture around. And you say, ah, oh, now I understand. But you're so busy expressing gratitude to God because of the grace of God. You're stunned by his goodness and mercies of our Lord. Let's stand together. Thanksgiving time. We position ourselves at Plymouth Rock. More importantly, we've positioned ourselves before the sovereign throne. Scripture's wide open. We now see how verse 1, verse 31 connect, bookend it. When we look at what you did, where you took the canvas of Jesus' life, had him on a cross, and then flipped the canvas three days later. What we see likewise is that we were born to this world with sin. But Jesus breaks in. We put our faith and trust exclusively in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And then you turn the canvas and we see something that we could not have even imagined. And we give all praise and all glory to you. Thanking you now, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.